Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. Well, tonight we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and uh, I spent most of the morning working on this. I had originally teased that we go into chapter 6, but I figured we had enough uh, just in the one chapter. I can judge by my notes how long I'll speak. I've been doing it for a little while, and so I knew by this afternoon that I had enough in this one chapter, and so it's a good one. It is a repeat of the law. Uh, some call Deuteronomy the second law. It's not a second law, but uh, the title itself, Deuteronomy, from uh, over a month ago when we began the study, it comes from the Septuagint. The Hebrew title, though, is found in the first uh, translation of the first couple of words in the Hebrew Bible of Deuteronomy. The Hebrew title are These are the words. So these are the words. That's the Hebrew title of Deuteronomy 1.1. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness in the plain opposite stuff between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hezeroth and Dizahab. I'm glad I went back to read all those words. But these are the words. And so some have called this the second law. It's the same law. It's not a new law. It's just a rehearsing to the second generation. And so we do that all the time at church. We have kids in Sunday school. They're rehearsing the things that we had learned when we were younger, that we were taught in Sunday school, if you happen to be raised in a church. And we do it all the time. That's what Moses is doing for the second generation preparing them to enter into the promised land. And here we have a second recounting of God giving the children of Israel the Ten Commandments. I picked out a key verse. For me, the key verse is verse 29, where there is the cry, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. So the cry is from the Lord himself. Oh, that Israel would have such a heart that they would fear God, keep all God's commandments, that it might go well with the children of Israel and their offspring, their children forever. Here in Deuteronomy 5, Moses repeats the statutes, the judgments, the commandments that Yahweh gave to the children of Israel and begins by reminding the second generation who came out of Egypt that they were there in Horeb. He begins by reminding them. And this was not all the people there, but everyone who was 19 years old old or younger, so they were little children. But I can tell you this, I was raised up in church. 
I can remember significant things as a child uh, being raised up in the church, some of the moves of God upon my own heart, upon the congregation. And so children don't easily forget, especially big things. And this was a big thing, that they were there, and that's how it's worded for us in Scripture, in Horeb or Mount Sinai, when God spoke his law from the holy mountain, from the mist, verse 22, from the midst of the fire, the cloud, the thick darkness, the loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And so Moses will begin by reminding the children of Israel, you were there. Remember these things that you had seen 40 years ago there at the holy mountain. The law which Yahweh gave to their parents, he now calls the second generation to learn and to observe his law as he prepares them to enter into the promised land. And he calls them, verse 29 once again, to fear him, to always keep his commandments that it might be well with them and their children forever. So God made a covenant with Israel and we read the beginning of that in verses 1 through 5. It says, And Moses called Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes, the judgments, which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today. All of us who are alive, the Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. So I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the words of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire. You did not go up the mountain. So the giving of the Ten Commandments, Yahweh's relationship with Israel prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments was based on his covenant with Abraham. That had been given over 600 years earlier. But now the Lord does a new thing. After 600 years, they were walking in the faith of Abraham. And my college professor would say, the four laws of Abrahamic righteousness, which speaks about Abraham's loyalty to God, in Genesis 12, Abraham's trust in God in Genesis 15:6, Abraham's obedience to God in Genesis 18:19, and God's provision for Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. So the four laws of Abraham, Abrahamic righteousness, loyal, trust, obey, and provide. But after 600 years, God gives them now a written law as he prepares them to become a nation before all the other nations of the world. And thus the law identified Israel as set apart in a covenant relationship with God. All Israel had to do was to learn these laws, but also they were to be careful to observe these laws. And this is true to this day that we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we are to walk in the ways of the Lord. It's not just having a head knowledge, but 
It is an understanding that actually causes us to conduct ourselves as children of God in this world. So that's what God is challenging Israel to do. Moses calling the children of Israel to do, to learn the law of God and to obey them, to walk in obedience. In Matthew 23, 3, Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe... Now, this is Jesus speaking to the general population in Israel, whoever was there at this time. He's talking about the teachers in Israel. They were teaching the law of Moses. They didn't live the law of Moses, but they were teaching the law of Moses. So Jesus said to the people about the teachers, or a majority of the teachers, Matthew 23, 3, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. So Jesus, in the time of Jesus, he's reminding the nation at that time, it's similar in our time too, we have a lot of people who may know, but they do not observe. They may say, but they do not do. But Jesus is saying to the children of Israel at that time, obey the law, observe it and do it. This is good, but don't follow the false teachers of your day, for they say and do not do. So after the first generation came out of Egypt, they were led by God through the wilderness, a very short journey. If you follow the timeline, it's just right around three months. They're there at Mount Horeb. Here it tells us in Exodus, it says Mount Sinai. They're there at the mountain of God to receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord. So it was a very brief period. And from there, they encamped, they made the tabernacle. They sat there for a little over a year. And then they were on the move and God took them to Kadesh Barnea and said, now go into the land and occupy. So it was under two years maybe a year and a half, where God brought them out of Egypt, gave them to Ten Commandments, structured worship around the tabernacle, had them prepare all that they needed for the tabernacle worship, sent them on the way to Kadesh Barnea, said, go and enter the land, and ultimately they disobeyed. They would not go. This caused that generation to roam that wilderness until that first generation died off for 40 years. So that was never God's intent. He gave them quick access to the promised land. But the people, though they may have observed the law and the words of God, they were not obedient. They did not do. Now the second generation, they're getting ready. They're on the east side of the Jordan River across from Jericho. God has staged them to enter into the promised land. And so here they are reminded to not be like their parents, but that they should observe and do all that the Lord commands them through his holy law. I love Psalm 19, 7 through 11. I even put this to these words to music. And we, I don't know if we've ever even sung this song here because it's a little jazzed up and got a little funk in it. Um, so, I, you know, maybe 
it's church appropriate, but it's for a cool church. And you may have a cool pastor, but I don't know. Anyways, the words are this. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More more to be desired they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. And that is what Moses is reminding this second generation who had been there, many of them at Horeb or Sinai when the Lord gave the commandments to Israel. Now he's reminding them to observe and do that it would be for your benefit and your children after you. The writer of Hebrews relates the awe of that experience at the holy mountain. He words it this way in Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. And speaking to the church, so he says, "When for you have not come to the mountain, he's talking about the church. You didn't have to see what Israel saw in their day. But he begins with those words, Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. For you did not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so, as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to the judge, or to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood sprinkled that speaks better things than that of Abel. So we as the church, we come to a different mountain. But the writer of Hebrews described Horeb as blackness, as fire, as darkness, as tempest. Even says that Moses was terrified, saying, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. The people couldn't bear it. But he reminded them of that. Sometimes it's good to remember the touch of God in our lives. And so before they enter into the promised land, he takes them back to a time long ago when they were little children or teenagers. And he reminds them of the power of God at that mountain. And then he lays out the Ten Commandments in verses 5 through 22. I'm just picking up two words in verse 5. I already read the majority of that, maybe a bad Sentence break as far as the verses are concerned, but verses are not inspired by God. They were placed there to help us. And I understand why they broke it up this way. It looks good as far as literary structure is concerned. 
But it begins in verse 5, the last two words. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other God before me. So the first table of the law, the four commandments deal with man's relationship with God. Uh, the simplified Pinnell version goes like this. Do not worship any other gods. Do not make any idols. Do not misuse God's name and keep the Sabbath day holy. He goes in a little more detail on these, but basically we have the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments really deal with our relationship with God in the sense of God saying, you shall have no other God before me. And while in Egypt and during their 40 years in the wilderness, and as they now prepare to enter into the promised land, Israel had been, will be exposed to a plurality of gods, some of which may have been attracting to them. And we know that is true. We know that they were attracted to many of these gods there in the wilderness wanderings and the golden calf was uh, making an image of God that they should have never made. The bronze serpent was because they worshiped the God of Molech. The into the promised land, they would fall to the gods of Asherah or Baal. And so Israel had this issue of often falling to worship false gods. And it was the first of the Ten Commandments. You should have no other God before me. Jesus used this with Satan. When Satan said all these things, this kingdom, this world, I give to you. If you just bow down before me. And Jesus responded, Matthew 4.10. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. You shall have no other God before me. So commandment number one, no other God. Commandment number two, no carved images. They already, um, they would actually blow this while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord. Now, think about this. God spoke the commandments to all of Israel. Moses went up and received the Ten Commandments written on the two stones from God in a period of 40 days and 40 nights. So they knew the spoken word of God. It hadn't been inscribed on the tablets at this point yet, but they would make a molden image of gold, a calf, right within the 40-day period of receiving the Ten Commandments. But the Second Commandment, no carved images, Verses 8 through 10, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, anything of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So Yahweh commanded Israel. They're not to make any likeness of anything. 
not in the heavens, not on earth, nor in the seas. They were not to bow down. They were not to serve false gods. God reminded them, I am a jealous God. They were to rather worship and love Yahweh. Yahweh gives them warning that those who worship idols, it not only destroys their life, listen to that, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the third and fourth generation. This is fairly common. Now, this doesn't mean it always happens that way. I would say that on the Pinnell side of the family, I, I never heard of my grandpa Earl ever having faith in Christ. What I heard from my dad about my grandpa was that he was a womanizer and he was a drunkard. That's how my dad described his dad. And to be honest with you, dad didn't want much to do with his dad because of that. Now that could have become my dad, but Jesus got a hold of his heart when he was 28 years old and it changed the course of our entire family. But often we know that if there's addictive troubles in one generation, it's often passed on to the next generation. We see it also in our country with the welfare system that was supposed to help out those who have need. In our country, when uh, I sat on the board of Love in the Name of Christ here in Lake County, Illinois, we had third and fourth generation welfare recipients. Their grandmother, their mother, their themselves, their children, they just wouldn't break the cycle. They were, in fact, often get afraid to break the cycle. So there's a warning for those who worship idols telling them it will not only destroy your life, but the possibility of your children, your grandchildren to the fourth generation, your great grandchildren. But we also know that that God can interrupt those things. In Romans 8:28, we know that all things work together for good to those who are called by God. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And it would be my desire, as it was my parents' desire to pass on faith to their children as they were successful in doing that. As Lily and I then able to pass on faith to our children and watching at this point, all of our grandchildren have been baptized, received Christ as their Savior. And uh, there you go. we got my dad, Lily and I, our kids and their spouses, our grandkids, four generations. So that's what God desires. And it doesn't always work that way. And, and you know, kids struggle and they go through difficult times. And we're to be there to just continually to be the example for them to keep pointing them to Christ, knowing that he is always the answer. So no other God, no graven images. Don't take the Lord name of the Lord God in vain. Verse 11, a one verse one. Number three, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So taking the name of Yahweh in vain is not merely 
using God's name as a cuss word, although I would not suggest you doing that. It's also that of dis- diminishing or discrediting God himself, maybe swearing an oath to the Lord that it's not a real oath. It's, you know, Jesus warned about that, said, let your yes be yes and your no, no. In Proverbs one thirty nine eighteen, it says, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. It's speaking wickedness against God. And we see that happening in our world today. So it's not just merely the thought of don't cuss, but honor the very name of God and how you use God's name, the name of Jesus Christ. And it seems that in our world today that some of the most popular cuss words have to do with God's name being used or the name of Jesus Christ being used. Christians should not cuss. They should not use God's name or the name of Jesus for selfish purposes. Rather, they should bring glory to the name of Christ and the name of our Father, God. The fourth commandment. This is the longest of the ten as far as description goes. But if you read from Exodus account, he zeroes in on a different point in Exodus remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, he refers to creation. He doesn't refer to creation at all here. So we read verses 12 through 15, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within the gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the example in Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. God would go on to say in Exodus 20, for six days I labored creating the earth and rested on the seventh day. That was the example here He calls them to remember their time in Egypt where they had a seven days a week work week. They were always going. They were never letting up. And God said, you're not to be like that. You're not to have your kids like that. You're not to have your servants like that. Even your animals, you're all to rest on the Sabbath day. Keep it holy unto the Lord. And just as Yahweh redeemed Israel out of the land of Egypt, Jesus has redeemed us. Therefore, we are to be continually, Titus 2, 13 and 14, looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem unto himself from every Redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. So I still think it's wisdom. And technically, I I would say that I don't take a true Sabbath. In fact, the priest 
never had a true Sabbath. They were always offering sacrifice on the Sabbath. They worked through the Sabbath. The preacher, I guess, uh, often falls into that as well. But I do carve out um, parts of a couple of days where I'm not in the normal routine that I have, as we might say, like through the Monday through Friday. So I do carve out some time and uh, take time. We should all carve out time to be with the Lord. So that's the first table of the law. No other gods, no graven images. Um, Don't take the Lord's name in vain and remember the Sabbath. The second table has to do with man's relationship with other people here on this earth. And so where the first table of the Ten Commandments is vertical, as is our relationship with God, this is horizontal, our relationship with each other. And a simplified list, honor your father and mother, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, do not covet. So verse 16, honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you, and your days may be long, that your days may be long, that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. So the first command of the second tablet teaches children to honor their parents. And he gave us a twofold promise in this. Number one, that your days may be long. Number two, that it may be well with you in the land of promise. So it's a conditional promise to Israel is not necessarily transferable to the new covenant that we live under in Christ Jesus. However, Paul reiterates this standard for Christians in their homes. In Colossians 3.20, he reminds children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord and also well-pleasing to your parents. This... So that was commandment number five. Number six, do not murder. You shall not murder. Verse 17. The Hebrew word for murder here is to slay or to kill. It's the taking of another human life, but it's used to indicate premeditated murder. Even can be used as accidental killing, but ultimately um, it's not talking about being in military where maybe defending your country or fighting for your brothers of, in arms that you take other people's life. This is taking the life of another who has been created in the image of God. And so Jesus took this law to a spiritual level and he does this on a few of them. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, he says, You've heard that it's said of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders shall be in danger of judgment. Now, hold that thought. I'll finish this verse in a moment. We'll come back to it. I just thought about this. David was introduced to us in Scripture as a champion, a giant killer, right? He slew Goliath when he was a teenager. He went on to lead a regiment within Israel. Saul was king. David was one of the commanders 
as a young man, the women of Israel began to sing songs about Saul and David. King Saul hated this song because he didn't like the lyrics. It gave David top billing where it said, Saul has killed his thousand and David his tens of thousands. That just drove King Saul to a point of jealousy. But David was condemned not by a physical killing that he personally had done, but by putting Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, whom David had had sexual relations with Bathsheba and got her pregnant. He had Joab put Uriah at the hot point of the battle that he would be killed, and he was killed. And to that, God held David accountable. To that, David had to confess his sin. To that, he had murdered. Even though he had killed hundreds, if not thousands, there was one death that was laid on David's account that was not a justifiable death, and that was the murder of Uriah. He was trying to hide his sin, and God said, you will not succeed in doing that. So Matthew 5, 21 and 22, you have heard it said of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. And David was certainly in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that who is ever angry with his brother without a cause will be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says Raka or you fool shall be in danger of the judgment. So we're to strive to keep the sanctity of all life not to take a life of an adult, a child, or a baby in the womb. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. So here the Hebrew word speaks about sexual intercourse with the wife or the betrothed of another and so the act of adultery or unfaithfulness to one's spouse. And once again, Jesus took this to a spiritual level in Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You've heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at another woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus teaches us that there's spiritual aspects of the law too, not just the physical obedience, but spiritual obedience as well. Number eight, you shall not steal. We're talking about stealing, robbing, um, taking something that doesn't belong to you, belongs to someone else. Today, there's a portion in our society here in the United States, especially the last several years, that they now call stealing reparations. And uh, the dictionary.com reparations, their definition, compensation in money, material labor, payable by a defeated country or another country or to an individual for loss suffered during or the result of war, monetary or other compensation payable by a country to an individual for historical wrong. So I, I think they threw that historical wrong in there more recently. But for Christians, we are not to steal. If reparations come to individuals in our country, let it come through the courts. But for Christians, 
Ephesians 4.28, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give who has need. So don't steal. Go to work. Get a job. Not only provide for yourself, but be able to help others at the same time. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. God wants his people to be truth bearers. We are to be like Yahweh. We are to be like Jesus, not like Satan. Jesus said of Satan, talking to the Pharisees in John 8:44, you are the father of the devil and the desire of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. What he speaks, he speaks a lie because he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and a father of it. So don't be like Satan. Don't be like the devil. Be like Jesus. Be like God. Be truth bearers. And number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Do not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servants, his female servants. We may not have servants. Maybe if you're big enough to have employees, don't covet. I lost a very good laborer once when I was a brick mason foreman. I had an ex-army ranger laboring for me. And it just so happens on this project that they we were right off the 294 and they were redoing the road in that section. And so they got permission from the owner of the project that I was working on to set up their trailers there. And so the superintendent of the road crew used to watch my laborer work every single morning before the bricklayer showed up, have everything ready for us. That's their job. Have everything ready for the brick masons. You want to make money in masonry? Make sure your bricklayers keep working all the time. And they don't have to want for anything. That's the job of the laborers, to keep the brickies going. And this guy was good at it. And lo and behold, that superintendent of the road crew snatched my laborer from me. I think he was coveting the good guy that I had and... Although I was a union brick mason at that time, our laborers were non-union, and so this was a union company, and he could offer him so much more. I, I was happy for him. He got into a good place and uh, probably was a lot better off for it. But So no male slaves, no female slaves, but maybe employees, maybe um, It's other things in life. We're not to covet, not his ox, not his car, not his donkey, not his motorcycle, not anything that is your neighbor's. Just don't covet. And it's a verb meaning to take pleasure in, to desire, to lust, to covet. And we're not to do that. Paul said in Romans 7, 7, For I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. This was past Paul's pathway to redemption when he as a Pharisee thinking he was living by the law suddenly realized that he coveted his neighbor's stuff and he was actually condemned by the law that he tried to live by. 
It was the stepping stone that helped bring him to Christ. So Moses wraps up the Ten Commandments, verse 22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain, from the midst of the fire, in the cloud, in the thick darkness, with a loud voice. And he added, no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. So Jesus was asked about the law. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? And Jesus said, first of all, he said, why do you call me good? There is no one good but one, that is God. And then he said to the individual, you know the commandments. And he laid out the second side of the Ten Commandments, the horizontal man-to-man side. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, Luke 18, 18 through 20. Perhaps Jesus did not quote to this man, you shall not covet. He left that one out because he knew the man had a covetous heart. Yet the gospel gives several evidences of Jesus keeping all the Ten Commandments. But more importantly, Jesus said of the law, do not think that I've come to destroy the law. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill Matthew 5, 17. And then Jesus was asked again in Matthew 22:36 through 40, again about the law. He said, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And so that's what it boiled down to after a couple of thousand years or 1,600 years. They're like trying to figure out what's the important ones in the Catholic Church, the seven cardinal sins. What's the real biggies that we need to watch out for? And Jesus answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first and the great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So for those who love God, love Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, they love their neighbor as themselves. They'll find they'll have no problem walking in obedience to God. So we finish out in verses 23 through 33 and picking up verses 23 through 27. And so it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory, his greatness. We have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. The man that God spoke to still lived. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of God the Lord our God anymore, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? I really like this. I found it humorous. So their parents went to the leaders, the elders of Israel saying, we're going to die if we keep hearing God speak like this to us. So Moses, you go. Maybe you'll die, maybe you won't, but at least we'll stay alive. You go near, you hear, because they're saying, what human could do this? Who could possibly do this? Moses, go. Verse 27, you go near, you hear the Lord. 
all that the Lord our God may say. Tell us what the Lord our God says to you, and we will hear and do it. So they were afraid while the law was being given. As the Lord spoke the words, they told Moses to go, and he did go up. He did not die, not because of that. He died a natural death um, because of his disobedience to the Lord, like we all will die natural deaths if the Lord doesn't come again. But the real danger here was the distance that the people put themselves from Yahweh. They told Moses to go. And that's a danger that we see in the churches even today. They look to the preacher or the teacher's to be that person who draws near to the Lord. You tell us. You hear from God and tell us and we'll do. And yet the Lord is saying, draw near to me. In James 4, 7 and 8, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil. He will fear, flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Israel was unwilling to draw near to God. Yet in Hebrews 10, it says, Let us draw near with true hearts in full assurance of faith, having hearts sprinkled from the evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Ultimately, Israel failed to hear and do all that God commanded them. And we read in verses 28 through 31, Then the Lord heard the voice of of your words when you spoke to me and the Lord said to me, I've heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. So it wasn't wrong. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me. Here's where they failed. They didn't rightly fear the Lord God. Oh, that they would have such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments that I it might be well with them and with their children forever. So go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, the judgments. You shall teach them that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. So God desired that they would fear him in their hearts. They feared the physicality of what they were seeing. They the noise, the fire, the shaking, the trumpet, the voice of God there on the mountain. But they didn't have the dread fear, that fear of awesomeness that they needed, that reverence of God, that awe that they needed in God. And we need that same type of awe of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ today. Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding of all those who do His commandments, His praise endures forever. It's good to walk in the fear of God. And number two, God desired that they would always keep all His commandments. But they would fail, just as we fail. Jeremiah explains the reason why in Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is desperately are deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And yet God responded in Jeremiah 17:10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. God knows. And our God created us to know the true conditions of our hearts, that we might have a heart toward the Lord, that we would love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
that he would place in us through faith in Jesus Christ a new heart and a new spirit, as it says in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, that he would take the heart of stone out of our flesh and give us a heart of flesh, that he would put his spirit within us, cause us to walk in his statutes, that we would keep his judgments and do them. Only God can help us to walk in the ways of the Lord. And finally, 32 and 33, Therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the left hand or the right. I said that backwards, to the right hand or the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God commanded you, you may, that you may live, that it may be well with you, that you may prolong your days in the land that I am giving you. There's benefits of walking in the ways of God here on this earth, but ultimately in heaven as well. May we be a people who fear God, keep his word, walk in a relationship with Christ that helps to inspire a new generation to desire to do the same, that they would fear God, walk in his ways, and come into relationship with Christ. And Father, I pray that you would help us to do so that we would set good examples for our children and the children after them. For, Lord, the children of our community, those children who come to our fellowship and church, we're grateful, Lord, for those who teach youth and teach in the children's ministry. Our desire, Lord, is to know you, to love you, and to raise up a new generation. Help us to set a good example for that next generation. But Lord, help us to walk in your ways. Not just know the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, but to walk in your ways and do them. That we would live Christ before others. Let that be our prayer this night. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I pray that God would bless you, keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless you.